And this was an issue of scale. Uh, and that, uh, the problem that we set out to solve is the same problem that exists today. And I think you're seeing that also in the broader mental health uh, space as well. Just a simple shortage of trained clinical clinicians, a shortage of clinical resources, and a population that continues to grow every year. And so how do you scale? How do you think about uh, driving that best practice treatment down to that patient level? How do you support the caregivers? And how do you do that in a, in a scalable way? And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. What is the optimal level of intervention for a child with autism? How can we predict the outcome of the intervention? How many hours a week should we be spending on treatment? While these questions are often easily answered for predictable conditions like diabetes, they're much harder to pinpoint for behavioral health disabilities. Co-founder and CEO of Rethink First, Daniel Etra, has identified a stark lack of data on treatment outcomes for behavioral health patients. To bridge this gap, Rethink delivers intervention at scale for developmental disabilities and neurodiverse conditions. In this episode, Daniel discusses Rethink's journey to becoming an industry-leading behavioral health technology company. With decades of experience as a successful entrepreneur, Daniel shares his insight on building a successful company at scale in today's climate. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Daniel. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you. And I was looking at your experience uh, before you started uh, Rethink First. You, you've been to in different places, but healthcare. And I thought it was really interesting how you landed uh, doing something in healthcare and seems to be very passionate about it because you've been doing Rethink First for a while from the founding, from the beginning. Can you tell us your journey, like how you get to where you are today? Sure. No, I appreciate a comment you made earlier. I, I would sort of characterize myself as the accidental entrepreneur in that I wasn't the you know, 18, 20-year-old working out of a garage and having some you know, grand vision of, of changing the world. I, I took a more circuitous path from you know, finance to managing a, uh, a very much bricks-and-mortar uh, distribution company in the Middle East to working in consulting to then starting uh, my first company, um, which was very also very simple, a uh, uh, label printing and distribution business uh, with the same business partner as as with Rethink, but came late to the uh, the entrepreneurial game. I look at that as a positive in that I had uh, more gray hairs than the, the typical entrepreneur, and we were you know talking about it earlier. The the scars to to prove, I, I think. You know, in my case, and I can't speak for anyone else, but you know, for from my experience, having that, having run a business, uh, having looked at uh, different businesses from a financial perspective, from a strategy perspective, uh, all laid the foundation for building Rethink and, and bringing, I think, a more holistic or, or global perspective to starting a company. One of the things I've always been passionate about is uh, is working with children. I volunteered all my life, you know, growing up in New York City, uh, teaching at a school in Harlem after school, and I was working on Wall Street, continuing that. 
education and working with uh, fifth graders. And uh, I liked also your comment about inspiring youth today to think about healthcare. Uh, my role as a volunteer back then was to uh, to show uh, underprivileged youth that the world was bigger than their immediate neighborhood and that they could do, if they wanted to go in business, they could do anything uh, they wanted. And so my work with Rethink was really an extension of that passion. And in this case, really stumbling upon the dynamic where you have a very targeted population, individuals with an autism diagnosis, uh, the nice thing is you have a very clear medically recommended treatment approach, behavioral therapy, and it's recommended by um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Surgeon General. And this was an issue of scale. Uh, and that, uh, the problem that we set out to solve is the same problem that exists today. And I think you're seeing that also in the broader mental health uh, space as well. Just a simple shortage of trained clinical clinicians, a shortage of clinical resources, and a population that continues to grow every year. And so how do you scale? How do you think about uh, driving that best practice treatment down to that patient level? How do you support the caregivers? And how do you do that in a, in a scalable way? And our approach was a novel one to leverage technology to do that. And, and the nice thing is that this impacts uh, really all entities that revolve around the care of this population, you know, whether in the school system, in the home, and especially in, in the healthcare system as well. Uh, also, the beauty is uh, having an impact. And we are a double bottom line company, uh, having done, to your point, a variety of different things in, in past lives professionally. Uh, I really wanted uh, this venture to be one, but the combined both building a successful business, but having the maximum impact socially that we could. And I'm proud to say that uh, we reach millions of individuals globally across all the different end markets that we serve. And you know, from very humble beginnings focusing on autism, we now support uh, broad populations with developmental disabilities their caregivers, individuals with mental health issues. And our newest foray, which uh, really excites me as well, uh, how do you support employees in the workplace with a neurodiverse condition? So think about non-visible, non-physical disabilities. So really that entire lifespan as, as our company has grown, we've been able to grow to be able to support that individual from the time they're born, or at least the time they're diagnosed, all the way up to the time that they enter the workplace and support their uh, their families as well. And, it, and it's certainly been, you know, we've been doing this since 2007, 2008. So uh, as we joke, the 15-year overnight success, you know, the entrepreneurial journey, everyone, you know, tends to look at, uh, you know, the, the founders of Instagram or WhatsApp or Facebook. Wow, in three years, we built a multi-billion dollar business. That's not quite accurate. Uh, it may take 15 plus years to build the billion dollar business. I think that that's more how it how it happens. And uh, a lot of it is just moving the ball down the field uh, a little bit every day and continuing to be inspired by the people I work with, the populations that we serve. And I love what I do and, and continue to grow in, in all these different uh, directions. That's great. I do want to ask you a bit, a couple of things about what you mentioned, uh, but then I do want to um, understand a little bit also, how do you start? I know you mentioned that your work with a lot of the youth that inspired you to, to, to start this rethink first, but you mentioned earlier about leveraging technology 
And how does Rethink does that? Rethink first does that in, in terms of like leveraging technology. How is it different from what's other technology out there? Sure, a- absolutely. So as, as I referenced, the, the beauty of the, the market that we play in is that we're not reinventing the wheel in terms of treatment. Uh, you know, individuals far more experienced on the clinical side than I for decades have developed those methodologies. What we do is, is we, we seek to automate the workflow that goes into delivering treatment. So thinking about everything from how do you determine what does the patient need in terms of behavioral therapy? Uh, how can you create intervention plans at scale? One of my favorite examples, uh, we work with a large school district in, in the South, and they have probably about 500 students uh, on the autism spectrum and one board-certified behavior analyst, one BCBA, that's that, that trained clinician, available to provide services to that population. And so you, know, you don't need to be a genius to say, oh my goodness, how is that even possible? And so what we do is we automate a lot of the work that would need to occur from, again, uh, once the patient has the diagnosis, what does that patient actually need? Into what are the skill, uh, where are the skill deficits? What does the intervention plan look like across skills like social emotional skills, daily living, motor, play, leisure, expressive, receptive language, and then how, with a few clicks of the mouse, that specialist can create a full intervention plan that's specific to that student. And then how do you train the team that may be involved in delivering care from a uh, regular education teacher that may have that special needs student in their classroom for a few hours a day to the paraprofessional that's shadowing that student. Um, Historically, that paraprofessional might take them to the bathroom or bring them out of class if they were tantruming. We can now have that paraprofessional trained uh, in terms of delivering the intervention. And we use video modeling to do that. So when when maybe taking a step back, when I think about the what are the three pillars of our, our company? It's that workflow automation. It's a massive digital content library showing how do you actually deliver the intervention in a clinical best practice manner. And then uh, data analytics. How do we automate the measure of whether or not that patient is progressing? And that's something that, you know, for school districts, it's a huge challenge. And for clinicians, as opposed to... Uh, noting on pencil and paper as they've historically done or then typing it into a spreadsheet and then graphing it you know, with a few taps on a smartphone screen, did the child perform the task correctly or incorrectly, and then having immediate feedback of, okay, it's time to progress to the next lesson in a developmentally sequenced manner and all of that outcomes data is tabulated and it's graphed. And, and that allows a district administrator to have visibility across those 500 students to know, okay, how are they progressing? Where do we need to allocate resources? You know, or for a family that's working with this patient or their child, their dependent, uh, um, what should I act? How do I, how do I get my child to, to tell me they love me? It can be something as simple as that. Um, here's how you do that. Or they're exhibiting a problem behavior. How do I figure out what's causing it? And then you know, what are the strategies to address that? To a clinician that may be working with that patient in a uh, you know in a center-based context, okay, here's a, here's how to be more efficient uh, as that precious resource, as that trained clinician, so I can serve more patients 
and deliver uh, the intervention in the best practice way, all the way up to health plans that need to figure out, okay, if a uh, specific treatment plan is being recommended for this patient with an autism diagnosis, uh, is it medically necessary? Is it clinically validated? And then the provider that's working with uh, that patient, are they performing as, they're, as they need to? Is that child making the right kind of progress? And so it's leveraging technology to do all these things that uh, historically weren't possible before we started the company. Mm. So, I mean, that sounds really great uh, to have that resources for even for the caregiver, the teachers. Do you see the improved outcome because of the technology that you provide? Or is it you, you, you provide a lot of more, I don't know, as a parent... Sometimes you're lost when you have, you know, even with a child who have who don't have the the uh, artist artistic. But having that resources, I think, is really helpful. But I think at the end of the day, we also want to make sure that our child is doing well or better, adjust better. Is this something that you also can capture and prove sure. from your technology? Yeah, the answer is. Yes, the answer is yes. And um, the way to think about it and, and what's, what attracted us to uh, uh, this space, if you think of conditions like cardiac disease or diabetes or cancer, very clear uh, approaches to treatment, meaning based on the diagnosis, um, there are typically one, two, or three treatment protocols that are you know, rec- medically recommended for that diagnosis. And usually within a pretty narrow band, uh, one can predict what the likely outcome is. And yeah, there's some dosage differentials, but it's, it's normally a very linear process. When it comes to behavioral health and autism being one, and I should mention, you know, we, we began with our roots in autism. Today we serve you know, broad developmental disabilities as well as neurodiverse conditions. But going back to autism, uh, as the expression goes, you've seen one child with autism. You see one child with autism. You've seen one child with autism. It's very hard and almost doesn't exist until today the ability to predict what the outcome of the intervention uh, will be. And and so here you see you get at sort of the crux of the difficulty. You may have a child or a young adult with this diagnosis, but no one really knows or historically has not known what is the optimal level of intervention, how many hours a week is appropriate and to achieve outcome X. And if you increase the uh, number of hours, will you achieve outcome Y? You know, why is the reason for that? Because the outcomes data hasn't existed um, where you can do the analysis. I mentioned cardiac disease, diabetes, cancer. You want their data on, you know, tens of millions of patients, if not hundreds of millions, over the course of decades that, uh, that allow for that predictability. If you think about a, a way to truly manage the, uh, the disease, none of this has existed in uh, behavioral health and certainly not in autism. Um, where we and, and sort of our, our latest uh, development and sort of the next, the future, the next generation of products that we're developing we sit on a probably the largest uh, data set of clinical outcomes for autism treatments. And to give you a sense of scale, just in, in 2022, we gathered close to 30 million clinical outcomes data sets. And what we've now started to do is be able to 
divide those patients into specific clusters and based on the cluster to start predicting out a treatment outcome trajectory. So what should the outcome look like? And this is the game changer. So going back to your original question, part of what we do is deliver, help deliver the intervention at scale. So training people that don't have the knowledge, such as educators, such as parents, um, for those treatment providers that do have the knowledge, the clinicians, we make them more efficient in terms of scale so they can serve more patients. But the other side of the coin is now being able to say for this patient with this diagnosis, this level of severity, these other um, uh, you know, criteria, uh, this is the optimal level of intervention and this is what their progress is going to be. And no one's been able to do that before. And that's the game changer for, uh, for this space. And again, I get very, very excited. That's why I love what I do. But uh, this is the future. And this allows for more effective treatment. It allows us to be able to assess provider performance. It allows us to be able to really um, ensure that whoever the patient is, that they're getting the right level of care and also to know how much will they likely progress? Because some patients, certainly with these kinds of conditions, may reach close to a mainstream level of functionality. Others may not. But today, you know, the current situation, no one knows. They can't predict. We're starting to be able, as a company, we're starting to be able to provide the tools to health plans and eventually to providers as well uh, to make that prediction. And that allows for the optimization of, of the treatment. And that allows for the right level of care for patients mm -hmm. who need it. Well, that's great. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group, Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And you mentioned that the program that you have is working with people who have neurodiversity and uh, how your technology can support them. Tell us more about that. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, you think about when we first, when I first started the the business back in the uh, in middle of the 2000s, and when I would tell uh, people and whether it's investors or others that uh, we were focusing on the autism population, I'd often get a very quizzical look. You know, what is that, and why would you, you know, focus on this population? And now, you know, I, I joke when it appears on Oprah, it's now gone mainstream, I think everyone or most people would understand, you know, what is an autism spectrum disorder and, uh, and have some sensitivity and awareness to it. And uh, I think you know, if, you, if you talk to people today, they'll say they know someone or as a family member, it, it, the, the prevalence is increased and the awareness is increased. Neurodiversity is a relatively new term that, you know, we're starting to hear in, uh, in society and in the workplace. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And it falls squarely under uh, DEI. And I, I like the way a colleague of mine described it. Uh, she said, if uh, your office is on the fourth floor 
and the elevators go out. You would never say to a disabled employee, an employee in a wheelchair, take the stairs up to uh, my office. But yet, you may have uh, a member of your team that is uh, as a, as a neurodiverse individual that is not able to present in front of the group. And so how do you make uh, their manager, how do you make their colleagues aware of their, their status? How do you make the right kinds of accommodations in the workplace to allow them to be successful? So in this example, you may allow them or you may want them or permit them to be in a room by themselves and they can do the presentation over a webcam and it can be broadcast to the rest of the group. And that allows that individual to be a highly successful member of, uh, of your team. And so it, it's, it's a combination of driving awareness within an organization and really driving that cultural shift of understanding and acceptance. It's training for uh, colleagues, for managers, for HR, so that they can make the right kinds of accommodations in job interviews. You know, I think all of us have experienced the job interview and, you know, you better look at that uh, interviewer in the eye as you're providing your responses. You know, if you want to come across as confident and self-assured and knowledgeable, but yet, a neurodiverse individual may not be able to. They may be, be sitting like this the whole time. And it's not because they're not highly qualified and uh, you know, trained and uh, smart. It's because of uh, their, their disability. And it is a disability. And so a lot of what we do and what we're starting to do with our neurodiversity platform is driving that true change uh, within an organization, providing the tools for HR, for managers, for colleagues, to be aware, to understand what is neurodiversity, to be able to make accommodations for that individual, so specific accommodations for that individual to allow them to be successful in the workplace, to provide supports to that individual in the workplace to help them navigate uh, their environment. And so there's a coaching element that we do with those individuals uh, as well. And you know, not least, uh, we want employers to be viewed as employers of choice. You know, in an environment where it's uh, oftentimes it's hard to uh, find good talent, you have a population of individuals, both with disabilities, but in this case, non-visible, non-physical disabilities that are highly motivated, highly skilled, highly qualified, sometimes you know, outperform their mainstream colleagues, but yet they're excluded because either... They don't pass you know, the, the typical gates of entry or points of entry into an organization, or they worry that they won't feel welcomed within an organization. And so it's, it's really creating the right kinds of accommodations, environment for these individuals to thrive and helping corporations uh, to make those changes so they can attract uh, this highly skilled uh, portion of the population that is desperate for opportunities and historically have not had them. Yeah, no, I think that that is great because it definitely there's a lot of biases against uh, individuals who are not fitting the the box or the norm. What most people think the norms is, and, you know, when I think about a lot of things that you described to me, um, I work in a place that has a lot of interest in 
this sort of act to be inclusive, provide training, but there's also another kind of company who oftentimes they don't have the budget, they don't have the time to think about all these two. So your technology, is it tend to attract more the largest employer? What kind of employer would be interested in your technology? So after this conversation, I'll be following up with you. UCSF should be a client of ours. Um, but uh, sorry, I had to do a shameless plug. But um, in, in, all seri- in all seriousness, um, the beauty of what we do, and, and I think that's also the beauty of technology, is that it's infinitely scalable. So we have clients, uh, we work with a third of the Fortune 100, all the big tech companies, you know, everyone, I'm not going to mention names, but large pharmaceutical companies, automotive companies, uh, media telecoms, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees all the way down to employers that have a few hundred employees. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'll, I'll joke, uh, I love all my children equally. Um, you know, we, the, the goal, of, you know, one of the reasons why we exist uh, is to have an impact. And that's, you know, that's where we began. And so we are a, a company, a program, a solutions that have applications to the smallest of organizations. I think our smallest customer on the, the provider side maybe works with 30, 40 patients on the autism spectrum, you know, all the way up to Amazon, who's a, mm-hmm. a client, and, and, and everything in between. And, and, mm-hmm. and so you know, that's why we exist. No organization is too small. No organization is too large because they all have the same needs. And, and that notion of supporting all ed- entities that revolve around their care, you know, the patient remember is at the center. So whether in the school, in the home, uh, in the workplace, in the healthcare system, I think that's one of the things that makes us unique as a company, being able to serve all those entities, all those end markets to ensure that that patient, that member really receives the right intervention, the right treatment, the right support, and their families uh, receive the right level of support so that they can uh, have the best possible outcomes in their lives. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. Shifting gear, I want to uh, also ask you a few questions about you've been, uh, as you mentioned, you're starting Rethink First um, over a decade ago, uh, 15 plus years ago. And so you have gone through the ups and downs of uh, building your company. Can you share with us some of the challenges that you face that you overcome and the challenges that you thought uh, going in, this is something that's impossible, yet you make it happen? What, what, are, the, what, what are those? The near-death experience. You know, if you haven't had a near-death experience, then you, know, you haven't really achieved uh, success. I think we've all had them. Um, I'll always say that that my mantra is it's not if it's when, meaning that you find a way to make it happen. There's there's no um, you know there's no plan B, and that's sort of the way uh, I've approached uh, this business as, as well as other ones. But I, I'll, I'll tell an anecdote. I, I remember. I don't think I've ever shared this publicly. Um, I remember when uh, we were um, doing our, uh, our our Series B fundraise and this is years and years ago and i remember having about you know less not enough cash to make payroll for our uh, our business and, and going to one of our angel investors and saying you know can you can i borrow thirty thousand dollars so we can make payroll because we were just waiting to sign 
our uh, our Series B uh, investment, and and so we literally came uh, right on up to the brink of the edge of the precipice, and were able to uh, to keep going. But as you know, as as one of the co-founders and the CEO, I have to come in every day with a big smile on my face. Everything's great. Everything's fine. No problems. We just keep focusing on on doing what we do, and that's sort of you know the. Uh, uh, an example of you know being an entrepreneur. Um, I always remember one of my uh, business school classmates. Uh, he he had uh, he was a year ahead of me. He had gone off to uh, he raised a search fund and found a company to buy, and everything was ready. He just hadn't signed for his funding, you know. And then uh, uh, this was 2001, and 9/11 happened, and of course all uh, de- sources of debt dried up. And uh, I think he described having a few hundred dollars in his checking account to his name, and then he was just able to uh, to get some funding for for his business. And at the time, he said, "Look, if you're not prepared to get to that point, you know, don't be an entrepreneur." And uh, I think to you, you know, all of us have war stories we can tell. And you know, I think the trick is to make it look easy. You know, as my colleagues <laughs> say, you make it look so easy, um, but it's not. It's it's really about moving the ball down the field. That cliche, but it's true. Moving the ball down the field a little bit every day and being prepared to get very close to an existential situation, but overcoming it and constantly growing. At the same time, when you're an entrepreneur, you're optimistic and positive thinking that this would, of course, you think that it could happen, but then it would not happen to me because if you know that's going to go down that road, probably most people are just like, why should I do this? Um, so what you to, to what you're saying is that it's not, it's not easy. And, you know, to make it, how do you make it easy? To look, to make it look easy, because I think people can sense, right? Your team can sense when c- company is, in, not in trouble, like in the challenging time, but I think how do you bring everybody together to know, to say, I know this is a challenging time, but we can overcome these challenges together. Sure. So, so I think first of all, like we all can recognize being an entrepreneur is not an easy job. And if you want, if one wants an easy job, you can go work in corporate America. It's, you know, relatively stable, maybe a little bit less so these days, but, uh, you know, it's, it's relatively stable. So, so it, it certainly is a unique profile of, uh, to be an entrepreneur. I think, you know, you certainly have to be optimistic. Uh, I think you certainly have to have a little bit of a poker face so that when things get really bad, you don't show that to, uh, to your team. You know, you, to a certain extent, you shoulder a lot of the burden of the risk and the stress on your shoulder, you know, on, on your own, you carry that while motivating your colleagues to, uh, to continue to build and to help make the entity successful. You know, personally, I think I'm a generally pretty positive person. You know, we, I I try to uh, prepare for the worst and hope for the best, but it is a journey. And I think it's important to always keep that in perspective. And as we were talking about the beginning of the conversations for the 10 year and 15 year overnight success, um, when I, do speak to budding entrepreneurs and, and have these kinds of conversations with people that are just starting out and and uh, looking for advice. I always say it's a journey. It's it's you know it really is a marathon. It's it's not a sprint. And so um, one always has to keep that long term perspective. You need to think in terms of years 
not uh, not days or not weeks, mm-hmm. and uh, and believe truly believe that that you're going to build a successful um, company and 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 have an impact. And I've always believed that. I, I've always believed that we would end up where we're supposed to. And uh, I think, you know, to a large extent, uh, we have. There's always the bigger, better, faster. That's sort of the mind of the, the entrepreneur. But by and large, I think we've been you know, successful. And, and uh, we have an amazing team, people that are you know, just as passionate, but more passionate than I am about helping these populations. And, and so it's a team effort. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that you've been working on this rethink for over a decade, then you've seen a lot of the ups and downs. And I think you're the first one on our guests that have gone through the buyout and then the private equity growth and the recap. Tell us more about that story. Sure. Absolutely. You know, the, um, the reality is uh, one can have the most amazing idea but without you know, funding and uh, the execution component, you know, it'll it'll never happen. And so, part of that is uh, is access to capital. And, and we went through several rounds of venture funding to uh, to create uh, you know a, a small to medium sized entity. And, and the nature of that industry uh, is that every few years, uh, venture firms need to show a return on their investments so they can raise. Their next fund, and, and so it's a logical progression from venture funding to giving liquidity to those venture and early angel investors, um, and uh, partnering with a larger entity like a private equity firm. And, and I will say we were very careful who we partnered with. Um, you know, I'm a big believer. You, you know, it's a marriage, and uh, and you have to be careful who you go down, who you go down the aisle with. And so. So you know, we, we, we looked for a partner that would really help us in the areas that we needed help uh, and give us access to additional capital, additional knowledge you know, to take the business from you know, a medium-sized business to a very large business. Um, and, and I think that's just that, that's part of the journey uh, of, of a company and certainly the technology company. Um, we've been fortunate in, in having had the opportunity to work with great partners. And, uh, you know, as long as our sites, you know, the goalposts continue to shift and we want to accomplish great things, you know, we'll need the right partners to do that. And it is part of the journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I found that it's, uh, you need to be flexible at the same time uh, with the North Star where you want to accomplish and I think you you done that. So I think that's really impressive. Well, thank you for sharing your story and uh, your journey. One last question before I let you go is that what is your lessons learned that if you tell your 17 years old, or no, not 17, 25 years old son or daughter, uh, if they want to start a, a company, what would you tell them? You know, good, good question. A, a few things. Um, definitely be you know passionate about the problem that you're trying to solve because it's a long journey, and so you want to bring that inspiration to work every day. And the second part of that is that it's a journey. You know, the uh, I think unfortunately, and again, I mentioned I'm old school. I come from a uh, a different generation. I'm 51. I'm not like the young entrepreneur. I think um, people today uh, have a certain impatience. To achieve success, you know, with social media, 
And uh, a lot of the you know highly successful you know, short-term tech companies, people have this image that you can build a billion-dollar business overnight. It, it doesn't work like that. And so I would provide guidance or advice to my my, my daughter and my son. I have one of each. Uh, that it's a journey, and um, that you have to have that commitment for uh, you know over a decade if you truly want to build a uh, successful company at scale and that you should enjoy the journey as well. Celebrate the milestones, you know, put the defeats behind you, but it is a journey and, and a worthwhile one. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for your wisdom and appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.